Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Carbon Curve. I'm your host, Naeem Merchant, and this is a podcast about the collective action approach needed to remove billions of tons of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and fend off the worst effects of climate change. Today's episode is sponsored by Carbon Future. Carbon Future is an end-to-end platform for companies who want to participate in removing carbon from the atmosphere. Unlike conventional marketplaces, Carbon Future's monitoring, reporting, and verification platform solves carbon credit uncertainty for buyers like Microsoft and Swiss Re, while Carbon Future's support helps scale the world's most promising carbon removal ventures for real climate impact. You can learn more at carbonfuture.org. 2022 has been a big year for carbon removal. I remember saying the same thing about carbon removal in 2021, and I'm excited to see what 2023 will bring. I launched this podcast back in June, and since its launch, I've interviewed scientists, entrepreneurs, and policy experts on what it's going to take to reach gigaton-scale carbon removal, or CDR. In the U.S., we've seen the passage of the bipartisan infrastructure law that supports ambitious initiatives like the Direct Air Capture Hubs program. And, of course, the Inflation Reduction Act, a huge win for climate and for CDR through the expansion of the 45Q tax credit. In addition, Frontier Climate, an advanced market commitment that provides much-needed revenues to advance the CDR space, launched this past year and has supported a number of CDR companies with pre-purchase and long-term purchase agreements. There's a lot to be done to scale CDR, from policy to financing to measurement, reporting, and verification, especially for non-direct air capture CDR methods. But with early policy and financing wins in the books, and programs like DAC Hubs finally getting underway, Focus is shifting to implementation, so I wanted to use this episode to highlight some of the excellent insights from entrepreneurs and folks who support those entrepreneurs from episodes recorded over the last six months on what it will take to scale CDR. I've had a ton of great guests on this show, so it wasn't easy to put together a greatest hits episode like this, so I wanted to use this opportunity to shine a spotlight on entrepreneurs in the space running CDR startups and organizations that will be critical in implementing CDR at scale. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe to this podcast at carboncurve.substack.com or through your favorite podcast app. And if you'd like to get in touch, shoot me an email at naeem at carboncurve.co. I hope you enjoy the show. Okay, so first up is my interview with Rob Niven, chair and CEO of CO2 mineralization company Carbon Cure. Rob does an excellent job imagining the potential scale of the CDR industry and how decarbonizing concrete can help drive innovation in CDR. So give us a little background on the concrete industry and the carbon intensity of concrete production today. Yeah, I'd love to. Yeah, most people, uh, for most people, concrete is an invisible product, and yet it's all around us and it's as common as the air we breathe and it's enormous. It's about a 40 gigaton a year industry. So when people talk about carbon removal, they often reference it in terms of oil and gas sector. And, you know, we need to we need to build an industry 10 times as big as the oil and gas sector. You can look at it the other way and say, we need to build it as big as the concrete industry. So we have some precedent here, but I think it's just really important to understand the size because it uh, it gives you some important appreciation of not only the challenge of decarbonizing this industry, but when it's paired up with carbon removal, the opportunity to scale. And because you're working with an existing industry that is very local, the product can only be shipped about 30 minutes or an hour, is it means that you have concrete plants just about anywhere where people live. 
And every one of those concrete plants can be turned into a carbon removal factory by retrofitting them uh, on a very capital-like model. So this is, I think, just a phenomenal opportunity to scale up carbon removal by working with the concrete industry and do that with like using permanent mineralization pathways. Of course, most people may appreciate that concrete's all around us to give you some reference, so 40 gigatons, but it's also growing quickly. We're going to be building uh, new buildings and infrastructure at a rate of adding New York City, or a new New York City, every 30 days for the next 40 years are doubling everything that humanity has built to date. We'll be repeating that all over again over the next 40 years. So that's going to require a tremendous amount of concrete. And concrete, the main ingredient is cement. So cement is the fine powder, which is added with aggregate and water to make concrete. And you see it being delivered in these concrete mixer trucks around whatever town uh, your listeners are, are living in. And that cement is really the source of the CO2 emissions. And it accounts for about 7% of worldwide emissions. So a really high proportion. And they're, they're a very difficult 7% to reduce. And, and the reason why we say that is because it's attributed to an inherent chemical reaction. So we have an essential product that's going to be required to support humanity and society. But decarbonizing this product is a challenge because it's this inherent chemical reaction, which goes beyond just energy use. We can do all of the renewable energy that we want, but that won't get to the majority of the emissions from this industry. And that's really where carbon removal has an incredibly important role to play in decarbonizing this, what they call hard to abate sector. And just to, you know, put a finer point on it, I mean, 7% of global emissions from this industry, that's roughly 3x the emissions of the air travel or aviation industry. We hear a lot about the things we need to do to decarbonize aviation, but mm-hmm. we don't hear as much about what we need to do to decarbonize concrete. Yeah. And uh, that's it's, it's a bigger problem and arguably a tougher problem. Absolutely. I would agree. It's the largest industrial source of emissions. So it's, it's a, a really big and important industry. But fortunately, there's so many opportunities to decarbonize in this space. So we're focused entirely on concrete. And by looking at it from a global perspective, emerging markets, developed economies, um, fortunately, concrete plants are basically the same. Anywhere you are, they do vary a bit by size, obviously, but it's the same ingredients and the same basic plant design anywhere you go, which gives us the ability to standardize and provide universal solutions for any of the 125,000 plants around the world and providing also a platform of technologies that can be dropped in to any one of those plants. And we're showing that that can be done. We're currently licensed and working with 650 plants worldwide, over two dozen countries. So clearly, this is an industry that is a great place to innovate around carbon removal. Next up is my interview with Shashank Samala, CEO and co-founder of direct air capture company Airloom. Shashank shares his thoughts on de-risking the path to scaling CDR through shared infrastructure, long-term offtake agreements, and project financing. So on the DAC hubs, which is a you know, DOE program that's, that's designed to get um, four regional hubs across the U.S. deploying carbon removal, looks like DAC could be more than just DAC, a million tons per year on each of those hubs. But the idea that you mentioned shared infrastructure so that 
you know, like you said, you can kind of plug in, you know, that's, that's something that you could see even something like, you know, systems to improve measurement reporting verifications, MRV, um, as part of that shared infrastructure at those hubs. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, the nice thing about directory capture is that MRV is fairly straightforward, right? Like you literally are capturing carbon out of the air and you can put a flow meter in a simple piece of hardware to understand exactly how, how much CO2 you capture. So, and then you can make that hardware standardized and, and replicable across uh, a bunch of different DAC technologies at the same DAC hub even. So absolutely. And I think, you know, taking care of the other stuff and, and ensuring that DAC companies can come in and, and just plug in and be ready to go could be a really big accelerant and, and do risk the path to getting to a million tons. I don't know if, you know, four DAC hubs will be possible with the, with the 3.5 billion, but I think maybe a couple will be possible. That's great. Uh, sorry to cut you off there. Um, you're going to get into a, two other kind of policy approaches here. Yeah, the other two are procurement and, uh, and, and debt financing. So procurement... You know, CDRLA, the Leadership Act for CDR is, is could be huge. It's you know one of the probably the the biggest thing that could that is an enabler for the CDR industry is long term offtake that is incredibly low risk from a market perspective, right? So you know, for every one venture dollar we raise, we need to raise a thousand dollars of infrastructural and and project financing. And what, what when you talk, I was talking to a, a project finance vendor yesterday. And, you know, and the reason they're even considering looking at DAC now is that, you know, folks like Frontier and, you know, Boston Consulting Group, all these folks are coming in and, and writing corporate optic. You know, these are companies that have really good credit history. And when they write a 10-year optic agreement with a DAC company, that is a low risk from, from a market, market perspective and, and cash flows perspective for a given project. So, and I think... You know, we're, we're probably barely scratching the surface right now with those corporate optics. So, you know, the government coming in and actually doing, you know, large procurement deals for long-term optic for dock projects could be absolutely massive. Then, and the number three is low cost of capital, right? And this is where the DOE loans program office or some other uh, similar types of things could really, could really help because you need billions of dollars to, to get to deploy things and up to, you know, to, to get to 100 bucks a ton across the industry. Speaking of project financing, you'll probably need insurance if you want to access a large amount of it. Natalia Dorfman, CEO and co-founder of CDR insurance company Kita, talks to me about some of the nuances around insuring CDR as we go from pilot to commercial scale. So how do you think about carbon removal permanence or the durability of carbon removal stored? insofar as insurance is concerned, right? Like, ultimately, how should we be thinking about the risk of reversal as it relates to long-term and short-term CO2 storage? Yeah, that's something we've been talking about a lot lately. And I think, I mean, we've referenced our first product isn't that. Our first product is, you know, forward purchase carbon removal credits to ensure you get those credits, uh, that you receive a verified credit. But of course, that's only part of the problem. You then need to ensure that that carbon is stored away for the next 100,000, et cetera, years. And so it is probably quite obvious no insurance company in the world is going to do a 100-year policy or even a 50-year insurance policy. But what you could feasibly do is just do an annual insurance policy 
in essence, is the carbon still stored away this year? And if so, great. Insure again for another year. Is the carbon still stored? Yes, great. And onwards and onwards, unless something happens and the carbon is no longer stored, at which point you would have a, a claims payout, which would enable the carbon that was released to be like, regenerated to some extent. Um, I think it's not perfect, obviously, because either an insurance company will hold a buffer, in essence, um, of their own, which is something that they could do in which you would pay that claim in carbon, or you would pay that claim in cash and say, then we're going to regenerate the carbon that was lost. But it's not completely like for like. But I think in terms of how that insurance can function, you either would do it on that annual basis, in essence, almost holding companies to account that they can't just sort of forget about it. At the very least, there's an insurance company sitting there tracking is that carbon that we thought was stored, is it actually stored? We're monitoring it every year because we're on the hook to pay a claim. On the other side, the way you could possibly do it if you wanted to look at a longer-term insurance policy was maybe some form of um, longer-term warranty on performance, um, which, which might be another route of doing it, particularly for the more technological stored carbon. But I think that is a very interesting area and one that we are very focused on. And I think probably a good example of needing to speak to people in the market to actually understand what the carbon market and the regulators would actually deem to be an appropriate insurance policy that actually ensures permanence. And then insurance companies could probably modify to fit that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It seems like a really tricky area to get right, and it requires the involvement of a lot of different stakeholders. But this whole question around who's liable for CO2 that was claimed, you know, for a long duration of storage, and that ultimately doesn't happen. Yeah. Um, there's certainly going to be at some point a case where that, you know, even in the long, long duration of CO2 storage, that, that that could potentially happen. And how are we going to deal with that is, is a question that I think about. Um, and and it sounds like there's a few ways where a company like yours could tackle that challenge, but it sounds like it's it's probably requires a lot more thought and a lot more engagement with regulators and other other stakeholders that are involved in the process. I think so. I think it is a it's a very tricky question once you get into the nuances of what carbon storage is really trying to be and needs to be. I suppose if we go back to I think an earlier point that I at least tried to make, maybe not, maybe not well. <laughs> um, you know, insurance isn't a fix-all for all things. It is, it is one of the many tools we need in this market to create a more well-functioning, transparent, effective market and, and actual, you know, ensuring we actually have high-quality solutions that are effectively storing away carbon. And on, to that end... I suppose there's an aspect of insurance in which you can't prevent things from going wrong, but almost invariably at some point, there will be some kind of quote unquote, you know, carbon removal disaster. Just like there's been terrible oil spills and terrible pollution and terrible things that have happened in, in every industry once it gets to a certain size. You sort of can't stop that. 
you can't predict exactly what it will look like and what the ramifications will be. But one thing that insurance can do is ensure that there are funds to go out and fix it. And so at the most basic level, I think that's what insurance can do. And that is what insurance does very, very effectively when there are catastrophes around the world. It, it enables people and businesses and societies to build back and fix the problems that, were, that have happened. And so I think insurance as an industry probably does have a role to play. And in that, even as simplistically as that, but exactly what the form of the insurance looks like and exactly what its terms of cover are and, you know, what the claim payment is, that for, from our side is still something we're investigating. And if whoever's listening, you know, if anyone wants to reach out and talk about that, I would welcome that conversation. Next, here's part of an interview with Mike Kelland, CEO and co-founder of Ocean CDR company Planetary, on how the company is thinking about community engagement centered on economic opportunity and environmental restoration in the context of ocean-based CDR. And on, on that point around engaging communities, tell us a little bit more about, you know, what does effective engagement with coastal communities really look like in order to, you know, reduce or eliminate any kind of potential harms and, and maximize the economic benefits of, of ocean CDR and, and ocean climate solutions more broadly. Yeah. So I, I think there's, it's, it's a really interesting thing. And, you know, I'm honestly learning this stuff as I go here because, you know, I come out of software and tech where, you know, engagement with communities is kind of the last thing that you think, although it shouldn't be, but it often is. I think for me so far, what we look at in terms of engagement is that we believe that carbon removal in general is going to be a massive, right? If we just, you know, top-down analysis, if you go backwards from the IPCC reports and you say, and you look through these models and everything like that, and you say, well, if we need to do roughly 10 billion tons of carbon removal from the atmosphere every year, starting in 2050, and we expect that that price is going to stabilize somewhere around $100 a ton, right? This is a trillion dollar a year market. And to me, you don't, you know, you, when you look at that, that's going to be a lot of opportunity for a lot of people in terms of building out this, this industry. And it's similar to what we've seen with renewable energy. You know, this industry is built up around decarbonization and it's created a huge amount of opportunity for a lot of people and created a lot of jobs around the world and where it's being deployed and everything like that. I, I think carbon removal can be the same. And I think we can engage on the basis of an economic, you know, opportunity, but we can also engage in terms of you know, restoration, we can engage in terms of helping people to, you know, help to restore the earth at the end of the day. And if we're doing this right, that should be a big part of what we're able to do. I think when we engage with communities, the biggest thing we have to do is, is understand that we really don't know everything. We might have a lot of scientific knowledge. We might, you know, have done our research around harms. We might sort of, you know, think that we understand all the chemistry and everything like that. But, but I think we have to also understand that we don't have uh, necessarily the benefit of the experience in the region. We don't have the benefit of 
the local understanding. We don't have the benefit of any traditional knowledge. And so we have to approach those conversations, um, you know, with our ears open, right? Like, and our eyes open, not trying to tell people what we're doing or tell people how it should be done, but going in listening and understanding how people approach the ocean and how they approach, you know, sort of, you know, our work in that context. And then finally, what I would say is like, even outside of the direct benefits of this, you know, we have right now, if you look at, you know, 1.5 degrees and things like that as a, as that target, there's massive impacts to the ocean within that. You know, I think roughly 500 million people rely on coral reefs for their livelihoods around the world. And, you know, the, the impacts of two degrees Celsius on coral reefs are devastating. You know, we get up to something like 99% loss. And so when you look at something like this, where science is showing us that, for example, doing this process on a coral reef can actually increase coral resiliency, it can increase coral growth rates uh, through the deacidification of the water in that local area. Um, if we can bring that technology to those areas and to those communities, I think it can be an economic benefit, but it can also be a big social benefit and it can help with ecosystem services you know, sort of more broadly. So it's a complicated topic. I think there's a lot to do there. We've just started on the journey. Like, to be totally frank, we've just gotten into this. We're starting to have these conversations with certain coastal communities and areas uh, where we're planning to do projects and things like this. And uh, so far, they've been incredibly positive. We've had huge amounts of, of positive feedback on those conversations. And, um, you know, we're looking forward to doing a lot more of that. Next up. Peter Reinhardt, CEO and co-founder of Charm Industrial, offers an interesting way to think about measurement, reporting, and verification, and how we can and must approach this process differently than we've done in the past. And you recently announced that Charm has forged a new path for carbon removal companies to monitor, report, and verify their deliveries with a sufficient high-quality bar. That's exciting news, but before we get into that, I want you to take some time to tell us you know, as a carbon removal company, as someone who's steeped in this industry, what is broken about the current system for setting and verifying quality standards in carbon removal? Yeah, so maybe first we can even say like, what is MRV? Uh, MRV is, is monitoring or measurement, reporting and verification. And the way I think about it, it's almost the product, right? Like the activity is that we put carbon underground, but the product is that we measure, report, and verify that it is in fact going to stay there. And this is particularly important in carbon removal because with the physical product, like if you're making steel or something, you like, you show up at a loading dock like the truck and you make the delivery, right? And someone sees the material come onto their, onto their loading dock. But with carbon removal, like you take the CO2 out of the atmosphere somewhere, but it's all in a big bulk aggregate, kind of hard to know that it happened or not. And so how you prove that you really, truly delivered the thing is the product. And so I think it's extremely important to do monitoring, reporting, and verification very well. However, as you mentioned, the existing ecosystem has, has not been doing it very well, actually, for the, last, uh, for the last 20 years, really, kind of since the offsets marketplace got started. You know, I think in our blog post, we linked to like 10 different articles that all were giving examples of times when supposedly verified offsets uh, were like obviously not not true 
right? Like, uh, I think the Nature Conservancy got really taken to task by by Bloomberg here, where you know it's Nature Conservancy they set aside land for the point of conserving nature, but then they were claiming in their offset filings that the forest was going to be cut down in the next five years if they weren't paid for the carbon offsets. So things like that, the Audubon got caught in a similar scheme and a timber CEO, the big timber CEO came out and said, I'm not sure why I'm getting paid for this because I haven't changed anything about my behavior, but hey, it's an additional revenue stream. Someone should probably fix this. And there's like article after article after article about this, these kinds of issues. The Berkeley carbon, carbon trading uh, study or, or, or team has dug into this and you know they go through issues of additionality, issues of leakage, issues of permanence. And I think in aggregate, they're, if you sort of multiply the numbers together, what you find is that like 97% of the carbon offsets that are sold basically have no impact on actual carbon in the atmosphere. And so that's the current state is that a lot of these projects are all getting verified by traditional registries, both monitored, reported, verified. Lots of paperwork gets generated showing these things supposedly are doing something, but in fact, they're not. And so, you know, for us, I think to go get certified by that existing ecosystem when our entire goal is like that is the product and we want to be 100% trustworthy in delivering that, it's almost brand damage, I think, to go be certified by by that existing ecosystem that has not been showing us that they're doing a good job of actual certification for the last, for the last 10, 20 years. So what implications do you think this existing system could have on scaling up carbon dioxide removal? Like why should individual corporate or government buyers care about this? Because carbon removal is a product that relies on, again, on the trust that the thing happened somewhere else, because it's not delivered to a loading dock somewhere, trust in the delivery of carbon removal is incredibly important for its continued scale up. Otherwise, it's unlikely that people will buy more of it over time. So I think that's that's really the underlying thing. And because the existing verification bodies, I think in many cases, at least with carbon removal buyers, have already lost trust. I think it's really important that we do something different this time around with carbon removal than just go back to the same same old verification bodies that haven't been delivering good results. And I really like the framing around MRV is the product. You know, I've seen some analyses that show just this like significant underinvestment in MRV in carbon removal. And I wonder if we frame it as, well, MRV is is the product. Uh, that it might attract a bit more investment in order to step up these kind of quality standards that we want to see in, in CDR. And, and I think actually you, you, you don't encounter this until you actually try to make a delivery, right? And there's not that many companies that have actually tried to make deliveries yet. As far as I know, it's basically Climeworks and Charm are the two that have tried to make deliveries or have made deliveries. And then you actually go back to a customer and you're like, we did it. And then the customer is like, uh, cool. <laughs> like, what now? And, you know, I, I think this was in a political article uh, where Dan Ranshoff and, and the Stripe team were interviewed and political was like, well, how did you, how did you know the charm did it? Right. Cause again, nothing shows up at a bloating dock. And, and uh, I think Dan was like, well, you know, we did a FaceTime with the injection well operator <laughs> and then we reviewed some trucking manifests and stuff like that. But this is like a very unscalable way of verifying the carbon removal app. So uh, yeah, it, it's, it's, it is the product and, but you don't really realize that until the moment where you actually tell a customer that like, oh, I, I did the thing. And they're like, well, how do I know that you did the thing? Up until that point, it's all just in theory. 
Adrian Corliss, president and CEO of direct air capture company Carbon Capture, speaks to me about the benefits of the broad applications of DAC technology and how that's helped translate into a reasonable amount of bipartisan political support for it, which will be critical as we think about deploying DAC at scale. You made quick mention of, of the use of class two wells in the past for enhanced oil recovery or EOR. Is, is EOR at, at this point in your roadmap at all? Short answer is no. And, and I think this is worth talking about because I think that, uh, you know, direct air capture and its application, you know, in, in enhanced oil recovery, the decarbonizing of traditional fossil fuels is a, it's, it's kind of a hot topic and it, it's definitely polarizing. And I think that there's certainly critics of DAC that say, you know, DAC is, is really just a, a tool that's being co-opted by energy companies to, uh, to allow the continued production of fossil fuels when you really, the focus should be elsewhere. And, and, you know, so I'm going to say, first of all, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I think that that's a misguided way to look at, uh, you know, at, at, at DAC and especially, you know, the involvement of energy companies with DAC. You know, that said, we're, we have our particular mission. Our, our mission is around carbon removal. It's, it's not, uh, it's not about the reduction of emissions of the existing energy system. Now, having said that, you know, like if, if there are others out there that that's their focus, uh, you know, those industries have to decarbonize and they, they're going to have to find, you know, probably creative ways to do that. And I think I'm glad they are. And I, I think from that perspective, I, I don't think, you know, from that people should be viewing this as, you know, as, as, you know, DAC is a, is a tool of the energy companies. I, it, it is, but it's also a tool of companies like ours to, to deal with the other part of the math of getting to net zero, which is the removal piece of it. So I, I'm actually really glad in some ways that the application of DAC is, a, is as broad as it is, because you, know, for sure, there wouldn't be something called the bipartisan, you know, the, you know, the infrastructure bill that includes DAC hubs if we didn't have this broad way to look at direct air capture. And there's not many technologies in climate that uh, that kind of walk down the middle of this uh, sort of existing energy system in the transition uh, towards a new energy system where you know people can align themselves on both sides of, of the aisle to uh, to the need for director capture and you know it's again even though you know in the IRA it didn't garner any Republican votes I don't think that you should assume that uh, you know the, that the changes to the 45 Q didn't have a, a broad amount of bipartisan support uh, in advance of, uh, of passing the IRA. Finally, in addition to the CEO perspectives we've just heard, I wanted to share some insights from Stacey Kauk, Director of Sustainability at Shopify and one of the founding members of Frontier, a CDR advanced market commitment, on what it's going to take to get the next wave of corporate buyers on board to support these entrepreneurs in the years ahead. Your investments in the space alongside Stripe and Microsoft, I think, are uh, a big reason for the dynamism I think we're currently seeing in the CDR industry. But how do we attract the next wave of corporate buyers to buy long duration or permanent CDR that, you know, we know costs more money, recognizing that they're probably a bit more risk averse? What messages do we need to help get them on board and how do we smooth the path for them? I love that question because it's a bit of a riddle because companies have very different uh, risk tolerance different corporate cultures and, you know, Stripe and Shopify, I don't speak for Stripe, but Shopify, we, we like being risky. We really are happy to take a chance on something. You know, it doesn't mean that we haven't done our due diligence and we firmly believe everything's going, we pick companies that we think are going to be successful, but we do understand that there are things in the way that are outside of our control and doesn't necessarily mean the technologies 
not going to work. What it could mean is there's a regulatory barrier. There could be all sorts of other things that stop the solution from being successful. And when you think about other buyers of carbon removal, that has to be de-risked because companies are not going to want to spend money on carbon removal credits that may not end up being delivered. And this really ties into the whole push for, you know, an SBTI net zero commitment, a carbon neutrality commitment, because those two things, when a company makes those commitments, there's a budget associated with implementing that, right? And so what you're automatically doing is connecting a certain carbon footprint with your budget. And that'll drive you to a price point, an average price that you have to hit. And that can often be much lower than the cost of carbon removal today. And so, you know, part of the work that we're doing is trying to drive down that price so that it unlocks and makes carbon removal accessible for more companies. But then we're into the the chicken or the egg situation because that's a purchase way down the road. The price will be better. They'll get involved. Great. But we can't get there without their involvement today, right? So uh, when I'm talking to other companies about, you know, maybe joining Frontier, making a commitment to purchase through Frontier, or to just start buying carbon removal, I talk about two things. One is they need to learn about carbon removal now. And it's all about future proofing their business. Because what we've experienced in three years is that there's a few of us interested, we've bought everything. By 2030, there's going to be a lot of people, a lot of companies interested. We're all going to buy everything. So if you don't have a stake in the game now, it's going to be very hard and very expensive for you to have one later. So even starting small today gives you those benefits of securing those relationships and those contracts that enable you to have access to those credits down the road. And you also know what you're buying. You may have made a couple mistakes. At least you're not doing that when it's a mission critical purchase when your net zero commitments do. So there's that part. And then it's also about impact and making sure that you're aligned with whatever regulatory shifts are going to take place. There's a lot of froth around the definition of what an acceptable carbon credit is to use towards a net zero commitment. We don't know where that's going to land, but the education and the understanding is increasing around quality and permanence requirements. And so as that evolves, the price is going to get higher because there's going to be increased monitoring, reporting, verification requirements. So, you know, get involved now, future-proof your business and have a stake in the game when you're going to need it down the road to meet your climate or your net zero commitments. So there you have it. Perspectives from seven industry leaders on what it's going to take to scale CDR. I want to close out this episode with a huge thank you to my subscribers and listeners. This past year has been an exciting one for CDR, so thank you for joining me on this journey. I also want to thank the excellent team at Carbon Future for supporting this podcast. They're really an amazing team. Carbon Future is an end-to-end platform for companies who want to participate in removing carbon from the atmosphere. Unlike conventional marketplaces, Carbon Future's monitoring, reporting, and verification platform solves carbon credit uncertainty for buyers like Microsoft and Swiss Re, while Carbon Future support helps scale the world's most promising carbon removal ventures for real climate impact. You can learn more at carbonfuture.earth.